Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 46. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this on November 4th, 2021 in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. Careful listeners will pick up that I've tweaked that litany a bit, as I suggested I might in last week's episode. I have added inspiration and oppression to the old list. Both are profoundly important aspects of our history. Both were components of the national histories of all consequential countries, and neither demand a take on American history that is triumphalist on the one hand or self-loathing on the other. Finally, neither will get in the way of our main goal, which is to have fun while learning a lot about the history of the Americans. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple or wherever you like writing reviews, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. This episode is the defeat of the Spanish Armada and the survival of Protestant England, Part 2. The first 10 days of August, 1588, were a crossroads in history, and the first big battle at sea between fleets that blasted shipwrecking guns at each other. For those of you who are neither diligent nor attentive... Last week, we looked at the run-up to Philip II's project to invade England, including the geopolitics of the 1580s, the importance of the victory over the Armada in the history of the Americans, and Francis Drake's pre-gaming raid of 1587. Drake's raid destroyed more than 100 ships and boats, captured or burned a good part of the Armada's food supply, destroyed the seasoned staves and hoops for the barrels, that would have held the Armada's fresh water and food, caused Philip to paralyze his leadership with a blizzard of neurotic and conflicting orders, and effectively delayed the invasion by a year. Drake had also captured a great Portuguese carrack returning from India with an immense double load of valuable spices and other treasures, which went a long way to financing Elizabeth's chronically underfunded defense budget. At some point in the second week of August 1588, a merchant ship from one of the cities of the Hanseatic League, sailing through the North Sea off the east coast of England, found itself surrounded in the middle of nowhere by a herd of horses and mules swimming desperately with no land in sight anywhere. This is, among other matters of greater historical significance, the story of how those poor creatures ended up paddling frantically and futilely for their lives. It is mid-November 1587. John White has returned from Roanoke Colony, dispatched to England by the small and nervous band of settlers who had assigned him the task of securing 
reinforcing colonists and more supplies as soon as possible. The world had changed in the six months he had been away. As close as war between England and Spain might have seemed when he left in May, Drake's fleet on its secret but obviously anti-Spanish mission had set sail just a few weeks before the Roanoke fleet departed. The climate was infinitely more tense now. On October 9th, 1587, a few weeks before White's return, the Crown ordered all private ships in the realm to stay in port so they would be available to defend against invasion. Sir Walter Raleigh, Roanoke Colony's organizer and the only Englishman with Elizabeth's license to sponsor settlements in North America, could not find time to meet with White for 10 days because he was so busy preparing English defenses against seemingly imminent invasion. White would have a hard time getting anyone to pay much attention to the plight of the colonists, or even permission to take a ship back himself. The situation was dark indeed for Elizabeth, her privy council, and Protestantism. After years of hoping he would not have to go to war against Elizabeth, something had changed in Philip II in the previous year. Philip had concluded that there would be no end of Protestant heresy unless there was the end of Elizabeth, and zeal to destroy her had overtaken his usual deliberative approach to geopolitics. He was frustrated to no end that he had not been able to sail his armada against England in 1587. Drake and other misfortunes had seen to that, and he was determined to do as soon as possible in the new year of 1588. The year 1588 had already loomed large in the European imagination for more than a century. Various students of the Bible and other legends had stitched together involved arguments that claimed that 1588 would be a year of dire portent, ranging from apocalyptic doom to mere catastrophic upheaval. As the year approached, entrepreneurial printers throughout Europe, some of them paid by Francis Walsingham, as part of a disinformation campaign that might have impressed Vladimir Putin, satisfied the apparently bottomless human interest in calamity by pumping out almanacs that foretold terrible floods, hail and snow at midsummer, darkness at noon, bloody rain, monstrous births, and strange convulsions of the earth that would mingle land and sea. Some things, it seems, never change, including the reading public's fascination with global catastrophe. Anyway, Garrett Mattingly covers all of this in Chapter 15 of his book, The Armada, which is an extremely engaging read if you want to go deep on the crisis of the 1580s. Philip was not the sort to have believed in any such prophecy, and he was annoyed by the public fascination with it. He also did not need his subjects buying into the nonsense— and there was some evidence that it was making it harder to recruit sailors and soldiers. In Mattingly's words, a ruinous confusion of land and sea is not exactly the setting one would wish for an amphibious operation. And if empires were to diminish, what could be more clearly threatened than the world's greatest empire? The narrative needed a little top-down reshaping, and so it was that in the week after Christmas 1587, there was a curious epidemic of sermons in the Catholic world denouncing astrology, sorcery, and prognostications not founded in the word of God. 
talking points aren't new either. Otherwise, things have been going very well for Team Catholic. In France, the Catholic League, led by the Duke of Guise, the cousin of Mary, Queen of Scots, had the Huguenots on the run after years of religious war. In the Low Countries, the Duke of Parma, Philip's top infantry commander, had been making steady progress in the conquest of Flanders and had begun the construction of a series of canals that would allow him to shift troops rapidly between towns and concentrate them at Dunkirk, a potential point of embarkation for the invasion of England. By late 1587, Parma's force in the Low Countries was fearsome and at the peak of its military potency. The Protestant Dutch rebels were defending an always shrinking space, and the remaining advantage was the flyboat fleet under the command of Justin of Nassau, the bastard son of William of Nassau. With the extra time afforded by Drake, Philip had reconceived his plan for the invasion of England. The original scheme was for the Armada to sail for Ireland, draw off the English fleet, destroy it at sea, and then sail for the Channel, where it would protect Parma's men as they crossed to the coast of Kent in barges. The new plan was to skip the Ireland part and set sail straight for the English Channel, secure it against the English fleet, and get Parma and his men across as quickly as possible. From the Kent beaches, there would be an easy-peasy 67-mile march straight to London. As early as the fall of 1587, Philip began hectoring his admiral, Santa Cruz, to ready the armada to sail as soon as possible. Parma was worried that his powerful and battle-hardened army would be terribly exposed, even if only for 10 or 12 hours, as they crossed the channel and opened barges. Justin of Nassau's flyboats would cut them to shreds, even if Spain had destroyed the English ships. Parma therefore advised Philip that strategic surprise was important, however difficult it would be to achieve in practice. To that end, Philip instructed Parma to engage the English and the Dutch in disingenuous peace talks in the Low Countries, and Parma dispersed his troops and hid his construction of transport barges to appear less threatening. These peace talks seem to have had several effects, although all are debated by historians. They sowed mistrust between the English and their Dutch allies, the latter worrying that the former would abandon them if Philip offered Elizabeth a separate peace. The continuing prospect of a deal also exacerbated Elizabeth's tendency to hope for the best, especially if it meant she could avoid spending all that money on national defense. This drove the hawks in her circle of advisors, including Walsingham, Lester, Hawkins, and Drake, absolutely bonkers. They reacted as hawks always do in such situations, arguing loudly that the peace talks were all a show to weaken English resolve. Sometimes hawks are right about that, and this was one of those times. The sham peace talks came at a price to Spain, too. All that secrecy required Parma to slow his preparations to invade England, which would be very sad for Spain and its armada in August 1588. As importantly, Parma's battle-hardened army rotted in the barracks through the Dutch winter. In the 1580s, armies could not be kept in the field indefinitely. Disease took a constant toll and could ignite into epidemic fires that would burn through men camped in close quarters. 
and soldiers needed to be paid. If the supply of payroll gold were interrupted, desertion, always a problem in a world in which men could vanish with no obvious means of tracking or identification. Desertion could hollow out an army overnight. In the end, Mattingly argues that Philip's disingenuous peace overtures hurt Spain more than they helped. Elizabeth was also worried about Scotland. She had executed Mary, Queen of Scots, on February 8, 1587. She had written a conciliatory letter to Mary's son, James VI of Scotland, characterizing the execution as an accident and describing the extreme dolor that overwhelms my mind in thinking of it. The young and Protestant James may or may not have in fact been mollified, but he proclaimed his support of England against Spain. Still, reports of pro-Spanish plots coming from Scotland persisted, and in the spring of 1588 there would in fact be a failed Catholic uprising in southwest Scotland with the goal of capturing a northern base for the Spanish. All of this led Elizabeth to divert several thousand of her desperately needed soldiers to her northern border. Militarily, the English were very weak on land and quite powerful at sea. A census of English infantry capacity in 1587 revealed almost no experienced soldiers. Apart from a very few who had fought in the Low Countries or Ireland over the years. Such local militias as there were had been poorly trained, and an inventory of their weapons exposed them as seriously undergunned. Many would have to carry pikes and bows and arrows into battle if Parma were to make it across. Elizabeth's team implemented a crash program to enroll and train infantry and purchase weapons from German gunmakers. They also confiscated firearms from English Catholic recusants, both to arm the Queen's army and to diminish the risk of an internal uprising. Robert Hutchinson reports, however, that, quote, with nice English respect for the rights of property, the Catholics were paid for the confiscated weapons. The coastal fortifications had not been maintained and in late 1587 were in woeful condition. Masonry was crumbling and wooden emplacements had rotted to the point that they could not have withstood the recoil of a fired cannon. A small group of Elizabeth's advisors organized the rehabilitation of the fortifications around key harbors and potential landing points, and the situation improved considerably by the summer of 1588. Drake's year was put to good use, especially the last eight months of it. The English had put in place a system of almost 200 warning beacons along the coast in the early 1300s, and now it was overhauled. As anyone who remembers the beacons of Gondor from The Lord of the Rings will instantly fathom, the idea was that an enemy invasion along the coast would trigger the lighting of fires in sequence, one lighted on the sighting of another, all the way to London. News of a landing on the south coast, for example, could reach London in less than an hour, with the details to follow by a Pony Express-style relay shortly thereafter. England did, however, have a powerful navy, at least in its own waters. John Hawkins, the erstwhile West Country pirate who is now the wholly legit treasurer of the Admiralty, had developed a dramatic new ship design that would transform war at sea. Before Hawkins, victory at sea depended on one ship's ability to grapple with another. 
board and win control of the enemy ship by fighting hand-to-hand. Artillery was used to kill enough of the enemy's men that the boarding party could win. European fighting ships therefore had high castles and fore and aft that would protect the soldiers and allow them to shoot down on their adversary. In general, the Spanish and Portuguese galleons were built to win against enemy boarding parties. The big castles, however, made the ships top-heavy. The huge Iberian galleons were not very maneuverable, and in wind that made shooting difficult because the ships would vigorously roll, which meant that it was tricky to aim the cannons. Hawkins took down the big castles in his race-built ships and cast long-barrel brass guns designed to put holes in ships at range rather than to kill men ahead of grappling. These innovations were indeed revolutionary and not without controversy. Old curmudgeons like Martin Frobisher complained about Hawkins' innovations, but he won the day with the support of Drake, and that would turn out to be very important. Spanish sailors knew about the English innovations, but believed that Spain could in the end get close enough to the English ships that they could grapple them and then overwhelm them from their fortified castles. Even the Pope, however, was worried that Spain might be overconfident. In the spring of 1588, Sixtus V sent an emissary to Lisbon to poke around and develop an independent assessment. The emissary spoke with one of the senior Spanish captains, we don't know who, and Mattingly recounts the exchange, quote, If you meet the English Armada in the Channel, do you expect to win the battle? Of course, replied the Spaniard. How can you be so sure? It's very simple. It is well known that we fight in God's cause. So when we meet the English, God will surely arrange matters so that we can grapple and board them, either by sending some strange freak of weather or, more likely, just by depriving the English of their wits. If we can come to close quarters, Spanish valor and Spanish steel and the great masses of soldiers we shall have on board will make our victory certain. But unless God helps us by a miracle, the English, who have faster and handier ships than ours and many more long-range guns, and who know their advantage just as well as we do, will never close with us at all, but stand aloof and knock us to pieces with our culverins without our being able to do them any serious hurt. So, concluded the captain, and one fancies a grim smile. We are sailing against England in the confident hope of a miracle. God works in mysterious ways. Spain's biggest liability was, for the first time in his reign, Philip II himself. Until now, the workaholic king's leadership, management might actually be a better word, had brought Spain one triumph after another. By 1588, he'd sat on the throne more than 30 years, and during that time, Spain's power had only grown. Philip had built the first empire ever over which the sun never set. And in 1580, he had maneuvered his way onto the throne of Portugal, making him lord over the entire Western Hemisphere, 
He had heretofore destroyed all threats, kept the Ottomans largely confined to the Eastern Mediterranean, and led Catholicism to the brink of victory over the Protestant heretics. The Catholic League was winning in France, and Parma had those nettlesome Dutch on the ropes. But Elizabeth and her privateers, that was chewing on tinfoil. He had become obsessed with overthrowing her and restoring Catholicism to the British Isles, and would hear no objection. He pushed Santa Cruz to sail the Armada against England even in late 1587, when it was manifestly not ready. Santa Cruz found himself constantly promising he could sail in a couple of weeks over and over again. The great admiral of Spain ran around stuffing ships with supplies, putting new cannon every which where, and permittingly, the prisons, the hospitals, the merchant ships in the harbor, and the fields about Lisbon were scoured for pressed men to make up the depleted crews. Then, when his sailing date was scarcely a week away, the old man took to his bed and died. Philip II was not surprised, for the documents show that he had already picked the new guy. The date the news of Santa Cruz's death reached the court, Philip sent a commission appointing, here's a long one, Don Alonso de Guzman Obueno, Duke of Medina, Sidonia, and Captain General of Andalusia, Captain General of the Ocean Sea. We shall call the Duke Medina Sidonia because that's how history addresses him. Medina Sidonia was known as smart, a capable administrator, and an honest man. His military experience before his appointment seems to have been limited to mustering infantry quickly at Cadiz, and thereby deterring Drake from burning it down the previous spring. Medina Sidonia had no experience at all commanding ships at sea. Not surprisingly, he was shocked by his appointment and did his level best to decline the job. The Duke wrote a letter to Philip that candidly described his own poor fitness for command, his physical discomfort at sea, and his personal indebtedness, which would make it impossible for him to contribute financially, as commanders in that day were expected to do. Philip would hear none of it, and loyal servant that he was, Medina Sidonia went straight to Lisbon and to work. Mattingly describes how the Duke found matters on his first inspection of the mighty armada. What Medina Sidonia found there was a kind of frozen chaos. In the mad week or so preceding Santa Cruz's death, guns and supplies had been tumbled helter-skelter on the ships, and the crews herded aboard with orders to stand by for instant departure and on no account to go to shore. There were soldiers and mariners on most of these ships without money or arms or proper clothing. There were crews, the commands of unlucky or incompetent masters, who had practically no food. Some ships were laden far too deeply for safety. Some floated practically empty. In the wild scramble towards the end, every captain had apparently grabbed whatever he could get his hands on, particularly in the way of additional ordnance. Some ships had more guns than they had room for. Others had almost none. One galleon had several new bronze pieces stowed between decks, amidst a hopeless clutter of kegs and barrels. Some had guns, but no cannonballs. Some had round shot, but no guns to fire them. 
Since the Captain General's death, the fleet had been in a state of suspended animation. There were plenty of veteran officers who could see what was wrong, but not one with the authority to get things sorted out. Over the next three months, Medina Sidonia fixed all this tangled mess, or unraveled it as well as could be, before Philip lost his mind with impatience to get on with it. The Duke also used the delay to get to know his key subordinates. He listened to what his captains had to say, and they actually developed a palpable respect for this landlubber thrust upon them. Philip, however, was another matter. He pumped out a series of helpful suggestions for contending with the English fleet, often referring to it in the collective as Drake. Drake might fortify himself at Plymouth, or maybe Drake would wait to attack until Parma's orders were at sea or unsure so they could be cut off. Even if Drake threatened the coast of Spain, the Armada should continue on its mission to protect Parma's crossing, and so forth. Philip's obsession with Drake makes him sound like Brett Musburger back in the day, who neurotically referred to the entire Boston College football team as Flutie. As you can see, I was deeply scarred by that bit of sports casting almost 40 years ago. The big point, as will become evident, is that the old plan to destroy Drake before connecting with Parma was out. The new plan was to link up with Parma as directly as possible and only engage Drake if necessary to accomplish that mission. The Armada, now 130 ships carrying perhaps 24,000 men, about half what Santa Cruz had originally recommended, wanted to sail from Lisbon on May 9th or 10th. But a fierce wind blew in and pinned the ships in the harbor for the better part of three more weeks. The harbor pilots told Medina Sidonia that the weather was more like that of December instead of mid-May. It was May 30th before the Armada, which had now been rocking in the wind at anchor for three weeks, was able to clear the harbor and start sailing north along the coast of Portugal. Already, ships were reporting that their food was spoiling in their casks, made from unseasoned staves. The fleet made extremely slow progress up the coast of Portugal because the winds mostly came down from the north, but also because it could not sail faster than its slowest ships, the big ungainly supply vessels known, usefully, as hulks. With unspoiled food and much shorter supply than anticipated, on June 19th, Medina Sidonia made for the port of Caruna on the northwest corner of Spain. There he hoped to resupply his ships with fresh food and water. God or fate or science, your choice, hit the armada with a fearsome and rare June storm, blowing in gales out of the southwest just as the long line of ships was entering the harbor. Some of the fleet made it in safely and anchored. The rest put to sea ahead of the wind and were blown across the Bay of Biscay to France. At least one group of ships was pushed all the way to their actual destination, within sight of Cornwall in western England. It would be almost a month before the fleet would come back together in Karuna, revictualed and again ready to sail. The Armada would set sail for once and for all from Karuna on June 19, 1588, its sails filled with a fresh summer wind out of the south.
Meanwhile, the English were arguing out whether to wait for the Armada and engage with it in their own waters, or go on the offensive, hoping to catch stragglers by surprise and otherwise winnow down its massive power before it got in range of England. Drake, by which I mean the actual person and not the synecdoche, there's some vocab for you kids, argued for attacking the Spanish at the time and place of England's choosing. Hawkins and others came around, and eventually the Queen signed off on an offensive posture. A combination of incomplete victualing and arming of the squadron and bad weather prevented Drake's ships from getting more than a day's sail out of England, however. The same southerly winds that were pushing the Armada quickly to the north pinned down the English. The Spanish had the weather gauge, the favorable positioning between wind and destination. Remember that term. We shall need it again more than once. On July 29th, after lunch, Captain Thomas Fleming of the bark Golden Hind, one of the ships assigned to screen the mouth of the channel, arrived at Plymouth to report that he had seen a large group of Spanish ships at the Scilly Isles off the tip of Cornwall with their sails struck, as if waiting for the rest of the fleet to catch up. According to legend, Drake and the Lord Admiral Howard were playing bowls when Fleming rushed up to give his report. Drake famously, and supposedly, replied, We have time enough to finish the game and beat the Spaniards, too. Maybe it never happened. The written account of Drake's icy cool response came 40 years later. But maybe it did. That's within the range of human memory. And the timing of the tides were such that the English could not have left the port immediately, even if they had wanted to. The game would easily be finished if it happened, and the fleet ready to sail when the ebb tide flooded out around 10 p.m. that evening. Medina Sidonia and his captains, meanwhile, were assembling the armada, apart from several galleys that had gone missing for the time being, and on the morning of July 30th began the large march up the channel toward their rendezvous with Parma. This would be a good time, by the way, to pop open your map app and look at the geography of the English Channel all the way up to Dunkirk. I think it'll make all of this a lot easier to understand. In short order that very day, lookouts along the far western coast spotted the enemy, and the first beacon was fired. Mattingly's description sounds just like the beacons of Gondor, quote, as they were sighted from the land, the first beacons roared into flame, and presently, from headland after headland, the smoke towered skyward round the curve of the invisible shore, carrying the warning past Plymouth until all the south coast was alerted. The beacons glared redly above Dover to be seen by the ships off Dunkirk and signaled from the North Foreland to watchers on the Essex shore. At the same time, faster than any courier, other lines of beacons marching inland spread the alarm until not only London knew and Nottingham, but York and far off Durham, that the Spaniards had come at last. Eventually, scouting pinnaces of the two fleets spotted each other, as the sun set on July 30th, a west-by-southwest breeze pushed the Spanish slowly but deliberately east through the channel. Medina Sidonia knew that Howard and Drake had joined forces, 
and that they were to his east. Medina Sidonia went to bed, if he went to bed, with the important advantage of the weather gauge. This would be the last time he would have it, apart from brief intervals, for the next nine days. As the sun rose the next morning, Medina Sidonia saw a cluster of English ships leeward, downwind, exactly where he expected them to be, sailing briskly along and angling for confrontation with the powerful high-castled galleons in the front of the Spanish formation. Pot shots were exchanged, the English doing their thing and nimbly dancing along well out of grappling range. All good then. But then, behind them, directly to windward, the Spanish saw the main body of the English fleet. Somehow, and we do not know how, Howard and Drake had, under cover of darkness, sailed around the armada and stolen the weather gauge. They were now chasing the Spanish east along the channel and fully able to deploy their longer guns and superior maneuverability against the Spanish rear. Howard and Drake had surprised the Spanish. All conventional thinking would have expected them to block the armada as it sailed toward Parma, hoping to form a wall or stop it or weaken it along the way. In choosing the advantage of the weather gauge over the defense of the Eastern Channel, they had made a very risky bet. At this point, it must be said that this was the first time in history such a battle had occurred. Mattingly reminds us that the obvious isn't obvious when it has never happened before. Quote, Wisdom after the event is easy, but in the spring of 1588, none of the naval experts on either side foresaw much of what was to come. The size of the forces involved and the nature of their armament were unprecedented. No naval campaign in previous history and none afterward until the advent of the aircraft carrier involved so many fresh and incalculable factors. Back to me. Diligent and attentive listeners will remember my short account of the Battle of Lepanto a couple of episodes back. In October 1571, vast fleets of galleys had confronted each other in the Mediterranean, and the forces of Christendom had won a crushing victory over the Ottoman Empire. That would be the last big battle between oared ships, which had dominated naval combat for more than a thousand years. The war in the English Channel in the summer of 1588 would mark the beginning of a revolution in naval warfare that would echo repeatedly over the next centuries, including off Yorktown in 1781, still almost 200 years in the future. It was in this first encounter on July 31, 1588, that the learning began. The Spanish sailors were well-trained, even if weakened by sour water and rotting food. Medina Sidonia fired a signal gun, and the almost 130 ships of the Armada moved into its battle formation, a precise crescent shape with the points aimed at the enemy, the most powerful ships at those points, and the mass of merchantmen and hulks in the protected center between. The crescent of the Armada and the skill with which the Spanish would reform it again and again over the next week would both puzzle and awe the pursuing English all the way up the channel. On that morning off the southern coast of England at the western entrance of the channel, 
Captains on both sides must have wondered what the heck was going to happen. Nobody, anywhere, had ever been in this situation before. But they did understand what chivalry, not yet dead, required. Admiral must confront Admiral before the real fighting could begin. The Captain General of the Ocean Sea hoisted his banner as a signal to engage, as Castilian commanders had done since their first confrontation with Moorish galleys. The Lord Admiral of England dispatched his personal pinnace, the Disdain, to confront the Spanish flagship. It sailed close, fired a single shot, and then darted away. The shaking of hands at the center field accomplished, the battle was on. We could do a month of podcasts working through the next week's fighting, but that would be tedious for those of you not super excited by battles at sea. I commend to you Mattingly's and Hutchinson's books, on which I have much relied for the blow-by-blow. Suffice it to say that the fighting on July 31st was decidedly inconclusive. Both sides maintained tremendous discipline under arduous conditions and fired off an enormous quantity of shot, more than either had counted on. Neither did much damage to the other this day. The Spanish knew that they had to grapple with the English to beat them with steel on deck, but the English speed and maneuverability surprised them, even if they knew about it in theory. Howard and Drake did not let the Spanish get close enough to grapple, even when they set traps to entice them. The English, for their part, pounded the great Spanish and Portuguese galleons with their long-range guns, to relatively little effect. No mast went down, and Spanish repair teams plugged the few holes in their hulls. The velocity of the English shot attenuated at range, so they learned that they would need to get closer. The only real losses in the day were by accidents, or seemingly so. Two Spanish ships collided, and one of those was crippled. An explosion ripped through another, the San Salvador, killing at least 50 men in an instant. Both ships would fall into the hands of the English over the next couple of days. One of them was loaded with desperately needed shot and powder. The other, the one that, of course, Drake captured, had a trove of 55,000 gold ducats meant to pay the Spanish sailors. His nose for gold was extraordinary. Monday the 1st of August, day and night, was devoted to repair, maneuvering, and, if the English, fighting off their own coast, resupply. On the morning of August 2nd, the wind shifted to come from the east, and for a few hours, the Spanish had the weather gauge. This was Medina Sidonia's chance. He wheeled the crescent around to the English, chasing him, and closed in for the kill. Again, the two fleets blasted away at each other, again with relatively little effect. Even with the wind at his back, even with Medina Sidonia charging ahead in his flagship, the English were too fast. At one point, the English managed to isolate the Duke's flagship, but the disciplined Spanish fleet closed ranks to rescue him. By the end of the day, the westerlies had resumed, and again leeward, the Spanish reassembled their defensive crescent and resumed the slow crawl to Parma. August 2nd ended in profound frustration for both sides. The Spanish learned that they weren't going to grapple the English, even when they had the wind. 
The English knew that their own chosen tactic, shooting at the Spanish from range, wasn't doing enough damage to stop the Armada's inexorable march to the east. Thousands of cannonballs were sitting at the bottom of the channel, and both sides were running short of ammunition. But neither knew that the other was as well. The English were also short on powder and dispatched boats to shore with desperate pleas for more. The Privy Council had to choose between powder for Howard's ships and powder for their soldiers, waiting to contend with Parma's amphibious assault. So they rationed out powder and shot every day, demanding detailed accounting from their captains at sea, to which demands Howard and Drake essentially responded, each in their own way, Are you freaking kidding? There have always been staff officers complicating the lives of the fighting men. Medina Sidonia had a worse problem, which was that he had not heard from Parma. He had sent fast boats ahead with messages, desperately needing to know when Parma's barges would be loaded and pleading for ammunition, hearing in return only the chirping of crickets. On Wednesday, August 3rd, the wind stopped altogether, and apart from a short and low-damage exchange for a couple of hours that afternoon, the two fleets eyed each other warily just outside of range. Howard, having learned a thing or two watching the disciplined Spanish sailing and convivially chatting up the captured captain of one of the two prizes, reorganized his fleet into four squadrons of roughly 25 ships each. Howard, Drake, John Hawkins, and the grumpy Welsh explorer Martin Frobisher, who had distinguished himself repeatedly in the first four days, were put in command. In the coming days, command and control on the English fleet would improve considerably. On Thursday, August 4th, the two fleets had a complex exchange that very nearly resulted in catastrophe for one and then the other. At one point, Frobisher's flagship Triumph was cut off from its squadron and suddenly leeward to the Spanish on the land side of the Crescent. He put out ship's boats that frantically tried to tow him around. As many as 11 rowboats strained to tow Triumph, and the Spanish converged, Medina Sidonia hoping finally to grapple and board a big English ship. Suddenly the wind freshened and veered. The Triumph shook out her sails, cast off the boats, and scooted to safety. Meanwhile, Drake and Hawkins had been hammering at the seaward tip of the crescent, slowly pushing the whole formation to the northeast. What they knew, but Medina Sidonia did not know, is that they were pressing the armada ever closer to a barely submerged shoal known as the Hours. Once the Triumph got away, however, Medina Sidonia took stock and noticed a line of discolored water with an occasional rocky point poking above the surface, right in front of the armada, perhaps 20 minutes away. The Duke fired a gun, put out signal flags, and directed his massive fleet to the south-southeast toward the coast of France. The Spanish had barely escaped catastrophe, much to the disappointment of their pursuers. The English did win an important positional victory, however, because they had effectively ended the possibility that the Armada would try to gain control of an English harbor, such as Portsmouth or the Isle of Wight, that could be used as a stronghold from which to support Parma's crossing. 
Medina Sidonia was in a difficult position, but the English did not know it. He was almost out of ammunition for his big guns, and he hadn't heard a peep from Parma about more ammunition or the timing of the amphibious assault. As far as he knew, he had an open path to safety at the officially neutral roadstead off of Calais, France, so he took it. There he could communicate with Parma by mounted messenger or even go visit him. By Saturday afternoon, August 6th, the Armada suddenly pulled up and dropped anchor. The swift maneuver took the English by surprise, and they scudded past Calais roads and lost the weather gauge, dropping anchor just past the Spanish, a long cannon shot away. That afternoon, quite to Admiral Howard's surprise, Lord Henry Seymour's squadron sailed in to reinforce the English. Seymour had been tasked with patrolling the eastern end of the English Channel in the southwestern North Sea on the lookout for Parma's crossing. He had been doing this rather than joining the big fight against the Armada because the English did not understand the strategy of their own Dutch allies. Justin of Nassau, in command of a powerful fleet of coastal flyboats, had been keeping out of sight to the northeast, hoping to seduce Parma into attempting an unguarded crossing. The English, not understanding this, blew Justin's ambush by ostentatiously patrolling that very coast, removing any possibility that Parma would attempt a cross on his own. Eventually, the two allies sorted this out. Justin relieved Seymour on patrol duty, and Seymour joined Howard and his boys off Calais. By Sunday afternoon, the two admirals and their advisors figured out some important stuff. Howard and his commanders realized that they were not going to win their war shooting at the tight Spanish formation from distance, so they needed a new plan. We'll get back to that. For the Duke, the bad news kept piling up. The least bad news, which was still quite bad, came when his messengers reported that Parma was perhaps two weeks from being ready to cross. Medina Sidonia's men had been fighting for ten days already, and food, potable water, and ammunition were running perilously short. He didn't have that kind of time, and pressed Parma to load his barges immediately. The really bad news, however, was that the Armada could not protect Parma's crossing in any case. The waters off Dunkirk, for some stretch, were too shallow to accommodate the deep drafts of the Spanish warships, but Justin's flyboats could sail right through them. That meant that there was a valley of death through which Parma's defenseless barges would need to sail until they reached the safety of the Armada. The Duke and Parma both knew that no crossing could succeed unless the Armada defeated both the reinforced English fleet and the Dutch. The odds of the now far-outnumbered and outgunned Spanish winning under such circumstances were all but insurmountable. Checkmate. If the game were chess, the Protestants would have won at that point. It wasn't chess, however, because the English and Dutch couldn't just keep their ships at sea indefinitely. Disease was spreading through the English fleet. So Howard and his council knew they could neither wait out the Spanish, who had access to resupply and reinforcement by land, at least they so presume, nor win a straight-up cannon duel at range. They had to bust up the Spanish formation, 
isolate important ships and destroy them at close range, even if that risked grappling. But how to do that? On the night of Sunday, August 7th, the English decided to launch fire ships at the Spanish fleet anchored at Calais Roads. Now, I don't know about you, but actually seeing a fire ship attack would be fairly high on my list of time machine destinations. Hawkins and Drake each put up a substantial ship for conversion into a weapon, and six more were recruited from the fleet. The eight fire ships were gathered in the center of the English formation to screen them from the Spanish. The officers and crews frantically unloaded them of food, water, ammunition, and personal effects, and painted surfaces with tar and oil. The cannons were double-stuffed with shot so they would fire randomly and explosively when superheated by fire. The goal was to terrorize individual Spanish ships into cutting their anchor ropes and running. You might wonder how plausible this goal was insofar as the Spanish had shown such discipline in the campaign so far. I think to really understand how scary fire ships could be, you have to imagine being on an entirely wooden ship that is covered with tar to keep out leaks, painted with oil-based paint to prevent the wood from rotting, propelled by canvas sails, rigged with rope made of hemp, and laden with tons of gunpowder. Oh, and you probably don't know how to swim, and in any case, even if you do, there are no life preservers. There was no more dangerous fire trap than a 16th century fighting ship at sea. Each of the eight fire ships had a skeleton crew and towed a boat into which the crew could escape at the last second. Just after midnight on Monday morning, the eight raised their sails with the wind at their back and started blowing briskly to the screen of Spanish pinnaces. The crews set them on fire, jumped into the boats, and got away. Eight burning fire ships now swept toward the Armada, and as those double-stuffed cannons got hot, guns started going off at random, adding to the terror. The screening pinnaces grappled two of them, but the other six sailed right into the heart of the formation. In the middle of the night, the Spanish ships could not see their admiral's flag, and self-preservation took over. The ships cut their anchor ropes and raced out of the roadstead. The English, a better part of a mile away, couldn't really see what was happening in the gloom. They could see that two of the burning ships were being towed away, but it wouldn't be until the first light of day that they could see that the Spanish had indeed scattered in terror and that Medina Sidonia himself was all but alone. They pounced off the French coast across from the town of Graveline and there fought the final and decisive battle of the Spanish Armada. This episode is getting quite long in the tooth and I do want to conclude the Armada this week, So I'll send you to one of the books in the show notes or any number of descriptions on the internet for the details, which are fun, but not important. In short, the Spanish fought valiantly, even though they were almost entirely out of ship-busting ammunition, and the English destroyed or critically damaged several big ships. Medina Sidonia almost miraculously rallied his fleet into its defensive crescent. 
and the Spanish fundamentally acquitted themselves well, even as the English grabbed the weather gauge and pushed them northeast along the coast toward the Low Countries. As night fell on Monday, August 8th, the wind was blowing hard from the west-southwest, and the two fleets raced up the coast to Zealand. When the sun rose on the morning of August 9th, 1588, Medina Sidonia's fleet had sped up the coast on wind blowing hard out of the northwest, and were now only minutes away from running aground on the sandy shallows in the unfamiliar waters off Holland. The English fleet kept its distance, holding position with a series of short tacks well to the northwest, hoping on the remaining armada simply running aground. Now let's go to Mattingly for the miracle that God finally delivered. Quote, the pilots persuaded the Duke that there was nothing to do but keep his previous course, trying to edge seaward. From the chains of the St. Martin, the leadsman called seven fathoms, then six. She drew five. At any moment now, the ships ahead would begin to strike. It seemed amazing that some had not struck already. Thereafter, the waves would pound them to pieces more thoroughly than English broadsides. In those minutes, every man in the armada with eyes in his head must have tasted death. We do not know what prayers were offered, what vows were made. Then as they braced themselves for the shock of stranding, the wind backed. Right around the compass to the southeast, one ecstatic witness says. More likely to west-southwest, as the Duke reported, but far enough and suddenly enough so that even the leading ships could weather the deadly sands and the whole armada could stand away into deep water. Both the Duke and his chaplain felt sure that the fleet had been aided by a miracle of God. Well, candidly, he owed them one. The Spanish weren't the only ones stunned by the shift in the wind. The English were, too. Tired of fighting and low on ammunition themselves, they watched the armada set sail to the north ahead of the wind. The English did not know that Medina Sidonia had concluded that the only way home was around the British Isles. Short of fresh water and a long way from home, at some point in the next couple of days, the Spanish dumped all their horses and mules into the North Sea. The bulk of Howard's fleet, Seymour's squadron stayed behind to keep an eye on Parma, followed the armada to the north, lest the Spanish try to land on the North Sea coast of England or Scotland. Short of ammunition and food themselves, the English turned around when the armada passed the Firth of Forth three days later, leaving only a pinnace to keep an eye on them. Medina Sidonia would eventually get back to Spain on September 21st, having lost at least 27 of the Armada's remaining ships in the treacherous seas off Scotland and Ireland. Of the roughly 130 ships that had sailed for England in July, at least 50 had been sunk in combat or otherwise wrecked, and more than 12,000 Spanish sailors and soldiers had died. This is a great place to stop for today. Even I am getting tired of the sound of my voice. In the next episode, we will take up two epilogues, the aftermath and consequences of the victory over the Armada and John White's long struggle to get back to Roanoke Colony. 
We may even spend a little time on the mystery of the lost colony, if only for our awesome readers in North Carolina for whom that question looms large. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I should say that your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.